What's up, folks? This is Jason, and welcome to Jason Unleashed, episode number two. Now, if you didn't catch my debut episode, it is still uh, listenable on darkdiscussions.com. I'm now part of their podcast network. So once again, I want to thank uh, Mr. Philip Perrin and the rest of the Dark Discussions crew for hosting this podcast. Uh, who knows if I keep uh, cranking these bitches out. Hopefully, I'll try to get my own podcast feed and subscribe straight to it. But as of this moment, you can listen to this at the darkdiscussions.com feed. And my debut episode, which was just a few weeks ago, was my top 30 horror films of 2021. For those who listened to the episode, I want to thank you. I highly enjoyed recording the episode. And uh, hopefully I highlighted some uh, films that, that makes you want to go check out and seek them out. Now, as you can tell from the title of the podcast, and you probably read the show notes by now, but this is going to be my scene-by-scene review of the brand new Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022, streaming currently on Netflix. So those who are not familiar with me and my past uh, connection here with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, i get a little bit into that. Now, me personally, if you don't know who the hell I am, I've been podcasting on and off for about 12 years now. I used to have some theme po- podcasts. My original podcast is Horophilia, and we had like uh, mainly themed episodes. We reviewed random movies. But we also did themes like car horror, motorcycle horror, underwater horror, hillbilly horror, just different themed episodes based on uh, uh, different kind of movies. And then I did a My Bloody podcast where we only review slasher films. And then I also did a uh, Horrorphilia versus podcast where we reviewed remakes versus the original. Uh, this now, as far as Jason Unleashed, I really don't have any type of format. Just whatever comes to me, I'll decided to go ahead and record a podcast i originally didn't plan on recording my episode two this quick uh, but once i saw the texas chainsaw massacre and i saw all the uh hatred and the divisiveness uh, people's opinion on the film i knew this had to be a film that i had to review especially since i loved it so much and it seems like uh, it started off when the film was first released on that friday that a majority of the first wave of uh, reviews came in. People were complaining, hated the film. And then it seemed like slowly over the weekend, and uh, since the week or so that it's been out, uh, I've seen a lot of positive reviews. So this is definitely a divisive film. It seems like the, you're either in the camp that loves it or hate it. There's hardly any in between. Of course, there's going to be some people, but overall, it seems like this is definitely a love it or hate it type of film. Alright, so first I'm going to get in a little bit of my background here and my love of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. Uh, Just like Toby Hooper, I am from the Austin area. I grew up about 60 miles from Austin, but I've lived here pretty much my whole adult life. Uh, So that was one connection I always had to the film because uh, most of the shooting uh, areas uh, were in this area where I lived in the Austin, Round Rock, Pflugerville, which I lived in all those areas. And I am also a massive slasher fan. I love me all slashers, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Big budget, low budget, no budget. If it's an entertaining slasher, I'll give it props here. Now, overall, Friday the 13th is still my favorite franchise. But uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is slowly creeping up on it. Hell, it may even pass it up soon if there's going to be two or three more uh, TCMs before the next Friday if it comes out, which that's what it seems like uh, may happen here. Now, so growing up in the Austin area, this is way before the internet. People here in this area used to believe that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was based on a true story. They had no clue that it was just based, uh, you know, uh, Toby Hooper inspired from the Ed Gain story here. 
So it seemed like growing up, every kid had some type of connection to uh, the Leatherface family. Uh, my my personal story is I had a friend. He lived about a quarter mile away, two houses down. I lived out in the country here, but about two houses down, I had a, a friend in uh, junior high, and his dad was always in and out of prison. And one time I was over there, uh, and his dad was telling us a story. He he actually told us that he was in the same cell block as Leatherface. He said the Leatherface never talked at all. He always kept himself. But everyone was still deathly afraid to even approach him or interact with him at all. Which, of course, we know that's bullshit by now. It's not based on any type of true story at all. But I just remember as a kid thinking that was like such an awesome story. Now, the goal of this review is to prove why I believe this film is actually better than what you may think it is. Now, if you love this film, hopefully this review will bring to light some of the things that you love about it, maybe even more. Uh, if you think this film is okay, hopefully this will make you think it, you know, bump it up to maybe great status. And if you absolutely hate this film, uh, most likely you're probably not going to give it another fair chance. Hopefully I'll bring some things up during the review that will make you at least like or maybe even appreciate the film a little more. So at first, I'm going to get into some of the misconceptions that we heard of the film. Um, so to get into the production a little bit, after Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D, the producers, they actually had the rights to make five more films. So in, uh, and that was in 2013 here. So in April of 2015, one of the producers, Krista Campbell, she stated that the fate of the potential films would largely depend on the financial reception uh, and fan reaction to these, uh, the prequel that they, uh, that they end up producing. Uh, the, pre uh, the prequel actually came out in 2017, and Krista Campbell actually clarified in a uh, December 2017 interview that Lionsgate and Millennium Films have lost the right to the franchise due to the time it took to release it. So they took so long to release Leatherface that no matter what kind of reception it got, and in my opinion, I think it mainly got negative reception, but even if it had a positive reception, they still didn't retain the rights. They lost the rights to it here. So in August of 18, it was reported that Legendary Entertainment, they were pursuing the rights with interest in developing uh, not only film projects, but also a television series. Now, I remember that. I remember when they first acquired the rights, they did mention something about a TV series. And I think this would actually make a fantastic TV series. You know, if they concentrated on the family, started from the beginning. I don't, you know, I don't know about <laughs> the prequel going back to uh, Leatherface as a kid, but, you know, I guess maybe right at the time he became Leatherface, that could be episode one. And uh, I don't know, I think it could be an interesting TV series, maybe make it run three or four seasons. They probably could do similar to what they did on the Psycho TV series. Uh, you know, base it upon the original film, but definitely go on their own route. Uh, so who knows if they're going to keep doing that here. So to continue on, in September of 2019, uh, that's when Legendary Entertainment revealed that Fetty Alvarez will produce the next film. In November of 19, Deadline Hollywood reported that newcomer Chris Thomas Devlin, he is going to write the reboot, or the sequel. So in February of 2020, uh, two brothers, Ryan and Andy Tohill, they were hired to direct the next installment. Now the film's plot was going to focus on Leatherface, who is now over 60 years old, and it will take place 48 years after the events of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
Now the story, uh, the original story, which is similar here, you'll you'll hear in a second. But the original story is it was going to revolve around two sisters, and they were called Melody and Dreama. And Melody was a 25-year-old San Francisco moneymaker who dragged her younger sister with her to Texas on a business trip out of fear of leaving her alone in the city. And the younger sister, who was originally uh, named Dreama, is an amateur photographer, a wheelchair user who is presumably disabled. Uh, so on August 24th of 2020, the Toehill brothers were fired a week into productions. Now, the original rumor is that the brothers were actually filming it. They were one week into uh, actually filming the movie when they got fired. And there is a huge difference between actually shooting the film after a week and just being in production. So that's one uh, misconception that people said this was doomed from the beginning because they fired the original directors after they started filming, which is not true at all. It was just a production. One week in production is when they were fired. And then they were replaced with the eventual director, David Blue Garcia. So in March of 2021, that's when they finally completed the production on the film. And it was completed according to Alvarez. So, however, David Gar Blue Garcia does hail himself from Texas, and he has directed his own low-budget indie film. Uh, the report also notes that Garcia will be starting the movie from scratch, and he will not have to piece together his vision with footage from the original directors. The only true connection to the previous two directors is they did keep along the same cinematographer, uh, which the cinematographer worked on a film, uh, Blood Fe uh, Fest, from a few years back. And Blood Fest is actually a pretty fun film, and uh, cinematography was actually pretty strong in the film. So David Blue Garcia, I guess, he, him and Chris Devlin, they went ahead and reworked the plot of the film. You know, it is similar, of course, but they did uh, update it, and in my opinion, from what it sounds like, made it a lot better. Now, another rumor was when they started doing test screenings that the test screenings went absolutely fucking terrible. It be mainly because it was PC woke bullshit and it was terribly made. Uh, even one rumor was that the lead, one of the lead girls, was a transgender. But as you can see, pretty much all those rumors, in my opinion, were very wrong. And I'll get more into that here during my re my review here. All right, so that is just a little bit of backstory uh, on the movie here itself here. So hopefully that clears a few misconceptions here that were out there. Alright, so now I'm going to get to the review of the film. Now, I'm not going to go by line by line or dialogue scene by... I will do it scene by scene, but I'm not going to go to every single person's dialogue and scrutinize it or every action they do. I'm not going to get that detailed, but I will go pretty much scene by scene and point out some uh, observations that I made here. And hopefully, either agree or disagree, but hopefully you'll be entertaining here. Alright, so the movie starts off, so once again, John Larroquette starts talking about the original events that happened in narration, but after the camera zooms out, you actually find out what John Larroquette is actually narrating is a documentary that's playing at this gas station that one of her lead characters, Lila, is watching. So her first character, main character we'll introduce is a teenage girl named Lila. Uh, she asked about Sally Hardesty because she sees a newspaper clipping that's on the wall in the uh, gas station owner. He tells her basically a story about how Sally was the only survivor of that night. All of her friends were killed and Sally ended up becoming a uh, Texas Ranger and had been looking for Leatherface over the past 30, 40 years without any type of luck. I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but because this gas station guy is such an expert, as you will, on this incident, it's really not too far-fetched that he would have had Sally's number 
in order to contact her in case if he heard any type of leads. Uh, so right after this scene, we're introduced to the rest of the four main group of characters. First off, you have Lila's big sister, Melody. Uh, her business partner is a guy named Dante and his girlfriend, which uh, she never actually gets named in the film. I think she's the only character that's never named. Uh, from this point on, I'll call her either Dante's girlfriend or maybe the blonde girl, just to avoid any confusion. I'll probably just say blonde girl from here on out. Now, the whole reason uh, that this group of kids are driving down to Harlow, Texas, is because they bought a block of downtown Harlow, and they are auctioning off the properties to other business owners so they can make it some type of shopping mecca that people in the area can go to, uh, basically like a hipster antique district. Uh, you find out that the uh, Melody and Dante, they actually own a food truck, uh, but because of the prices are so cheap in Harlow, they can basically own a, a whole city building for less than what it took to pay rent for the taco truck in Austin. Uh, so Dante and Melody, uh, they are the two owners uh, and the chefs, and they're also the people who end up setting up the auction for the uh, city folk that are coming uh, down to Harlow. Now, if you're saying this is a fucking far-fetched, uh, yes and no. There are places in Texas that are not far from Austin that are like these antique districts where you can go shopping at. Um, I know there's some by Marble Falls and Schulerberg, or uh, probably get the names wrong, but I know there's some places uh, about an hour, an hour and a half that uh, does feature a lot of antique places. Now, don't get me don't get me wrong; it's not super secluded like Carlo is in this movie. Uh, and of course, half the town is modern, and a lot of the town is this antique district here. So, I mean, it is far fetched. Don't get me wrong, but it's not something that it's totally unbelievable. All right, now comes the next scene. We have introduced another character. We have our cowboy, Richter, pulls up in a big uh, diesel truck, blasted metal. He goes to start pumping gas, and he has his uh, pistol showing on his belt. And Melody, uh, she comments how he must have uh, have a small dick to be walking around carrying a gun. So this is when you get her very first impression of these characters. Uh, you know, first off, you're thinking, oh, man, this Melody bitch, she's a, an elitist left asshole that looks down upon uh, country folk and people and their rights to, uh, rights to open carry. Now, Rector, which is probably one of my favorite characters of any movie this year, he politely explains uh, the reason why he has the pistol. It's uh, for killing feral hogs that are uh, running around in the area, uh, which I, I'm not going to get into the story, but we did have a feral hog by where I lived, and my dad and his buddy, they got in a pickup truck, and they finally hunted it down and shot it on the road, and man, we had some... We had some meat for a few months here. All right, so next few scenes you get. Now the next few scenes, you end up getting a lot of uh, it's information dump here. You find out that uh, Lila, the younger sister of Melody, she's looking down at her phone, and she's looking through memes of stop the violence, and you see that she's trying to cover up a bullet hole scar that she has on her uh, chest here. Uh, now I originally suspected school shooting, but this uh, was confirmed a little bit later in the film. Uh, Melody does end up apologizing to Lila for making a scene on uh, behalf of her about the gun. Um, you know, I, don't get me wrong, there is no excuse for being extremely rude like she was, 
But you do at least get some type of context why Melody brought the whole issue up about the gun to the cowboy himself here. Also in the car scene here, driving to Harlow, you find out that they did a big social media campaign to get investors, business owners to take this bus ride down to Harlow so they can uh, look at the buildings and auction them off, uh, any of the empty buildings that they want to use for their business businesses here um and also this is when you find out that they have this self-driving tesla car which will uh you know that'll come into play later on in the film so on their way to harlow the sheriff and the deputy they stop them on the road to greet them i thought man is this going to be cliche going the racist angle of course of dante i haven't mentioned it here but dante is the other ones are white but the dante is a black guy and he has a white fiance and I thought the uh, sheriff was going to go that route, disliking the fact that, you know, they were intermingling or whatever. Uh, but you find out that the sheriff himself, he's actually more pissed that these outsiders are not local town folk and they're coming here to sell up all their property. Now, Melody, she does end up lighting up the mood when she reveals to the sheriff that her grandmother was actually from Harlow. And she ended up singing a song, I guess, a local song for the town. And that perked the sheriff up right away and he felt better about what they were doing so he lets them go uh just simple little moments like that add to the script and to the story you know they could have went typical asshole racist uh you know sheriff but they went a different route here and you know that the little moment with melody even though it was only her singing a line or two it, i thought that was a, a nice little touch here now one thing i did forget to mention is on their way to driving to harlow the uh, cowboy at the gas station he ends up passing them up and the blonde girl ends up calling him a coal roller. And I had to stop and look this up. What the fuck is a coal roller? I assumed that a coal roller was someone who drove a diesel engine and basically didn't care about the environment. I had no idea what it really meant. And here's the definition of what rolling coal is. Rolling coal is a form of conspicuous air pollution used for entertainment or as a protest. Some drivers intentionally trigger coal rolling in the presence of hybrid vehicles to cause their drivers to lose sight of the road and inhale harmful air pollution. Uh, wow. I had no fucking clue that the black smoke that these diesel trucks could, uh, you know, pour out, that actually could be done on purpose. Coal rolling is something you could purposely do. <laughs> uh, so I, I thought for the purposes of the movie, that was a... Uh, Really good asshole move that Richter did to try to get him back for her root comment. Uh, you know, it is an asshole move, but they definitely deserved it. But also, now that I know what fucking Cole Rowland is, and next time I see that shit, uh, it hasn't happened for a few years, but next time I see it and it happens to me, I'm going to get road rage because I had no idea that trucks could completely control this uh, Cole Rowland. I thought it was just something that the trucks periodically did i had no clue but now i know so i know in the future i'm going to have some road rage here all right so after they leave the cops you can see the town the harlow in distance because not only do you see harlow that's only a few miles away but you can also see that there are sunflower fields uh which also sets up the fact that when later on in the film when leatherface has to walk you know it's reasonably that Leatherface actually didn't even have to walk that far. It was just a few miles away from town. So when the kids arrive, uh, this is when you get all the details of what they're planning. Uh, they're going to plan on opening up maybe a restaurant, an art gallery, and other type of uh, hipster businesses. Uh, plus, they end up finding out that the heavy metal cowboy, Richter, he is actually the contractor that they hired to help fix up the place. 
to make it presentable to the future business owners making their way by bus. Now, the very first attempt at humor in this film is when Richter asks if they're a cult. I thought that was kind of funny, their answer and his response to it. Now, this uh, moment is when you find out that one of the buildings in this ghost town still has a rebel flag hanging from the second floor. So, Melody and Dante, they have to go inside the building to remove it uh, before the uh, potential investors get there. And while they're inside this house, which used to be an old orphanage, they stumble across this old lady. She claims uh, that this orphanage is still her house and she owns it. Uh, they basically argue back and forth about the bank foreclosing on it and now they own it. But she insists that she end up paying the bank full price for it, uh, everything she owed. Um, so when the old lady basically explains why she has the rebel flag, that's when Dante uh, basically explodes because it was basically an ode to her grandfather and uh, she has no problems with Negroes. <laughs> and also during this uh, scene, this is when you get a shot uh, where all the kids were uh, in 1975. And you see Leatherface and his face is scratched out. But you see the date of 1975, which ought to have been about two years after the events uh, of the first movie. Now, Dante, uh, completely pissed at this point. He's going to go get the cops so he can uh, kick her out of their uh, their business that they purchased. And also at this point is when you get the first notion that Melody might not actually be a total bitch. She actually is, in my opinion, a caring tone. She tells the old lady that she could get her help. Uh, you know, there are elderly shelters out there, uh, other places that she can go to that will help take care of her. Because, of course, the lady at this point would have to be close to 90. Uh, and at this moment is when you get our first full shot of Leatherface. He's at the top of the stairs, looming over them. Uh, he's hiding in the shadow of sunlight shining through. A really cool moment. Uh, so at this point, the cops come in. And they tell the old lady, which her name is Jenny, that she has to leave. Uh, she ends up getting sick and puking. She has, carries around an oxygen tank with her. But she ends up at this moment puking and falling down. Uh, and the Leatherface character, he comes down and grabs her, picks her up, and the cops uh, take him to the van. They're going to take her, rush her to the hospital. Now, Melody, once again, this is another proof that Melody is just not some elitist bitch. She actually proposes to go to the hospital to make sure the old lady ends up being okay. Um, but Dante's girlfriend, Blondie, she insists that her and Dante need to stay there for the investors, and she'll go instead here. Uh, so, you know, this is a sign that these just aren't uncaring uh, dicks here. Like you'll hear a lot of people that uh, saw this movie say that they couldn't wait for these assholes to die here. And like I said, they're not, they're not all bad here. So Richter, he's kind of pissed at what happened, uh, you know, what happened to the old lady that they had to rush her to the hospital. He ends up throwing his flag into Dante's stomach. And Melody and Dante, they meet the bank lady who helped him set it up. All right, now we're skipping to uh, back the sheriff and the uh, his dep I guess his deputy and Leatherface. They're taking uh, the mother uh, Jenny uh, on the way to the hospital, and Jenny ends up just croaking. Leatherface tries to keep uh, tending to her, trying to you know basically resuscitate her, putting the oxygen mask on her face and trying to crank the oxygen up. Uh, the cop ends up trying to stop Leatherface from continuing to revive her. Uh, at this moment is when Leatherface snaps, and literally, he snaps the cop's arm, which he breaks the bones, and then the bones popping out, he then shoves the broken bones into the cop's neck. 
This was a fist pump and hell yeah moment, man. A way to start off the kills in the film. F fucking fantastic. And then with a cop, you know, with his free hand, he uh, pulls out uh, a pistol and is trying to shoot Leatherface. Uh, but he ends up shooting the sheriff that's driving through the neck. And the sheriff goes off the road and they crash into this uh, harvester machine. But before they crash, uh, Blondie, uh, who's in the front with the police officer, she actually ends up texting Lila that the old lady just died. So while the uh, auction is going on, the younger sister, uh, Lila, she decides to go to Richter's shop and talk to him. Uh, you know, Richter does have an assault rifle out, and she has to see it. Uh, this is when you find out that she was shot in a, she was shot in the chest in a school shooting. And, you know, there are flashbacks moments to her laying on the ground and blood and bodies around her. And you basically get a sense that she's actually suffering from some, some, from some type of PTSD. And I thought at this scene, I think the key line in this whole scene is Lila says, uh, because she survived the school shooting, everyone is expecting something special from me because she was a survivor. Uh, which I can totally get that, you know, I know there's different people that said, you know, God ended up saving her, uh, it was meant to be, she's one of the, I guess, from what it looked like, one of the few people that ended up living, and since she was saved, uh, of course, some people are expecting big things from her, and she just wants to be, you know, from, uh, just a normal kid, <laughs> she's not thinking of doing anything big, she's thinking about living out her life as a teenager here. Uh, so I thought that was a really nice touch. It was a really uh, well-thought-out line of dialogue here. So after the auction concludes here, Melody ends up checking her text, and she gets a text that Jenny died. And Melody goes to get Lila. When Melody goes back to Richter's garage here, the two girls start to fight because she thinks that uh, Lila may have fucked the cowboy guy. But once, but once Lila hears about the old lady, she agrees to leave. All right, now we're switching back to the crash site. And Blondie, she's dazed, but she ends up waking up. And in the rearview mirror, she ends up seeing Leatherface cutting off his mom's face to wear as a mask. She's trying to quietly call for help on the CB. And this is when you get the gas station owner from the beginning of the film. He overhears Blondie stating how he's wearing, uh, wearing a face. And he immediately recognizes that she must be talking about Leatherface. What's funny is it took the third time... For me to watch this film, to even realize that Leatherface cut off his mom's own face when he was wearing it. For some reason, I thought it was someone else's face. Uh, I just didn't put two and two together, because it couldn't have been the other cop, because the other cop had facial hair. Uh, couldn't have been the sheriff, because the sheriff, of course, was still living. Uh, so I, I just don't I have no idea why I didn't realize that it was his mama's face that he cut off here. Uh, that was something I mentioned. Like I said, it took me the third watch to even put two together. Now, the sheriff that was actually shot in the neck, he's still not dead. He's actually spitting blood out. She's trying to get the cop to be quiet, though. She don't want to alert Leatherface. Uh, so when Leatherface comes to see what the commotion is, Blondie pretends to be asleep. And then you see Leatherface. He has his mom's oxygen, ma uh, oxygen tank. And he ends up cracking the sheriff's head open with the oxygen tank. A really brutal scene here. Uh, now Blondie, uh, once Leatherface leaves again, she tries to escape, but Leatherface grabs her, and he ends up, uh, I, believe, I can't tell if it was a knife or a piece of glass, I think it was a knife though, but he ends up stabbing her in the stomach, and he cuts a, a big cut across her stomach, just a really brutal, glorious kill, 
And there is one awesome final touch. After the blonde girl dies, Leatherface looks at her, has a hold of her face, and he looks at her, and you see one tear streaming down the side of her face. A really awesome touch, man. I thought it was just really, uh, just added a heartbreaking moment on, on this brutal kill. So, you know, that's another little touch that you wouldn't see in tons of other slasher films that I thought was uh, pretty awesome here. All right, so you get this awesome moment, and then you get the cheesiest, cringiest moment of the entire fucking movie. Uh, like I said, this is not all going to be just sucking this film off. There are some moments that I didn't like, and I, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to uh, tell it as it is here. And the scene I'm talking about is you see a field of sunflowers. The camera just focuses on it. And then out of nowhere, you see Leatherface pop his head up like he's some type of fucking Teletubby. <laughs> I mean, I was like, oh my God, what is this fucking scene? And I mean, this scene had no purpose at all. Uh, they could have completely cut the scene out and, w and went straight to Leatherface walking back home. So it was a, it was a badly constructed scene. It looked cheesy as fuck. I heard, uh, <laughs> Alex from the skeleton crew, uh, says, uh, that, that he heard that, uh, he was probably pinching a loaf and he was standing up after he's done, <laughs> which you never thought of that. He could have been here, but it was a terrible scene altogether. If I was, like I said, uh, like I've used to say, if, I knew how to video edit better. I would have, uh, when this DVD, Blu-ray, whatever, 4K comes out, I would make myself own director's cut and just completely cut that scene out here. It just felt so fucking terrible. They could have easily just uh, skipped that whole scene and just went straight to Leatherface walking back towards his home. And then also, what was pretty cool is when you see Leatherface walking back towards town, it also foreshadows the rain coming. You can see the dark, dark clouds in the distance here. And I never noticed that until the uh, this fourth review. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention. I saw this four times. Three times because I wanted to. Fourth time to take notes for this review here. But this last time I noticed there was dark clouds in the, in the distance here. So now we get back. Uh, the next scene is back to the barbecue that the, uh, that the people at the auction uh, downtown are uh, being a part of. And this is what was also pretty cool is this transition scene where it transitioned to the barbecue pit opening. That is the only time in this whole movie you actually get the famous Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, light bulb sound. You know, the ee like tons of other uh, movies in the franchise fucking wear out. That's the only time they ever do that scene is, is in this uh, that one scene here, this transition scene, which I thought that was pretty cool. Here. All right, so get back to the barbecue, and Richter, he overhears that the old lady's dead. And he ends up being a, once again, being a kind of a righteous character. He ends up taking the keys away from him. He takes the bus keys and the car keys away from him until they can actually prove to him that they have the deed and that they didn't actually kick this old lady out of her own house and cause her to die for no reason at all. Uh, now, I honestly believe that Dante actually thought he had the deed, you know, whenever he goes to look for it. Among his paperwork on the bus, I honestly think that his character was trying to find it. You know, that not that he was purposely did any of this and he was a dick. Uh, now, Melody, she ends up making Lila stay on the bus. Uh, since Dante doesn't have the deed, they're going to just make sure that it's not actually in the house. And they did all this for no fucking reason. Plus, they need to get their keys back from Richter. 
So that, you know, it's it's convenient, a way for them, a plot point for them to stay in town for Leatherface to arrive. But it does make sense. It's not like, a, once again, it's slightly far-fetched, but not unbelievable here. So uh, Lila stays on the bus while Melody and Dante, they end up going back to the house looking for the deed. Uh, at this point, the gas station guy, you actually see him calling Sally. Uh, you know, Sally, of course, is about as old as Leatherface at this point. She's in her 70s or late 60s, and she's uh, actually cutting up a hog at the time that she gets a call here. And she packs up, gets her shotgun, and starts heading to Harlow, Texas, trying to get a revenge on uh, Leatherface here. Now, it wasn't like a cheesy 80s montage. They could have did, you know, something that... <laughs> they could have did something like that here. But uh, but Sally, before Sally does take off, she does look at a picture uh, you know, from the first move of all, all her, Franklin and the, her friends all, uh, in the van, uh, laughing it up together. And I thought this, uh, this, this lady was actually a pretty damn good actress. I know she's not the original lady who played, uh, Sally Hardesty, but I thought that uh, the actress they got was uh, actually damn good. Not only does she obviously want revenge, but you, uh, in this scene, the actress actually looked like she had some type of fear in her eyes of what she possibly could confront. All right, now moving to the next scene, we have Melody. Uh, she goes upstairs in the house, no orphanage. She's going to go look for the deed, uh, and she does actually end up finding the deed in a lockbox. So at this point, she's emotionally torn, knowing that they actually threw this old lady out of her own, own house, in which, of course, uh, you know, the old lady was on her deathbed anyway, pretty much, but they end up uh, speeding up the process, as you will, which added to her death. Uh, so while she's upstairs uh, looking at the deed, Dante is downstairs uh, looking among the other uh, uh, paperwork the old lady has. And at this moment, Leatherface ends up showing up and he ends up with a big uh, meat cleaver and ends up slicing Dante right in the face. And what I really liked about this scene is how it paid homage to the original film. Instead of actually having a sliding door, in this case it's a swinging door, and when Dante tries to run out of the room... Uh, Leatherface grabs him by the waist and drags him back in into the kitchen. Uh, I, you know, it could be just coincidence, but I think that was a homage to the uh, whenever Leatherface grabs a girl and brings her in on the first movie. Just an alternate version of Leatherface doing that and slamming the metal door shut. Uh, now, at this point of the film, though, I was actually a little bit disappointed because all the previous kills were so friggin' violent. And it seemed like uh, Dante, he got a kind of off-the-camera slice of the face that you don't really get to see. But it does end up paying off afterwards once you eventually get to see Dante's face, which we'll get there. or not there quite yet here, uh, but really great prosthetic makeup here. So anyway, after uh, getting sliced in the face, Dante stumbles out into the foyer, falls to the ground. Uh, Melody hearing commotion downstairs. She uh, tiptoes down the stairs enough just to see Leatherface leaning over Dante's body. Uh, so she ends up going back up to Jenny's room and ends up hiding in the closet. Leatherface, he goes into Jenny's room and he actually goes to the closet where Melody's at. Pretty tense scene. But instead of looking for Melody, he's actually grabbing uh, a dress, I guess, that his mama used to wear. And he uh, wearing his own mama's face. He starts to put makeup on her. And once again, like I said, I never realized until the last time I watched it that he had his mama's face on. But now it totally makes sense. Because earlier in the film, 
uh, the old lady Jenny, she said if she knew the company was coming that she would have put her face on, which of course that means makeup here. So apparently she was a big makeup uh, person, or uh, you know, on occasion here. So at least when she knew there was company. So Leatherface, with his childlike mind, was probably used to seeing her dressed up, and he wanted to remember her that way. Uh, so that's why Leatherface grabbed the whole dress and started putting the makeup on and all that shit here. Now Leatherface hears a commotion outside. He looks out the window and sees a crowd. He gets mad, smashes the mirror, and leaves. Uh, now this is when the film uh, starts to rain really hard. Uh, Melody, she's trapped in the room with Leatherface and Leatherface starts to come back so she has to hurry up and get underneath the bed so he doesn't get uh, so she doesn't get caught uh, Leatherface comes in with a hammer and he starts to smash the wall uh, behind the bed and which contains voila his chainsaw from the first film that I'm assuming Jenny buried in the wall decades ago while Leatherface is smashing the wall trying to get his leather his uh, chainsaw Dante which is face down bleeding profusely in the foyer he actually uh, ends up waking up and he stumbles outside uh, now once again it's not probable but it is possible that he hasn't bled to death at this moment you know he does have a gigantic face slice uh, which, you know, it's probably not arteries itself, but of course a lot of blood here. So it, it is fairly realistic and believable that he could walk for at least another minute or so before he eventually does bleed to death. Uh, so Cowboy Richter, he sees him walking in the rain. He goes up to him and discovers him and sees uh, his fucked up face. Uh, the banker lady, she ends up leaving, uh, coming out of the bus and she ends up going up to uh, Dante also and sees what happened. Richter commands her to go back to the bus and he goes to the house to see what the hell was going on uh, with his gun here to see what the fuck happened to Dante. When Richter enters the house, he hears Leatherface upstairs tearing up the wall and he goes up to investigate. Uh, Leatherface, you know, does pull the chainsaw out of the, of the wall and it won't crank. Uh, you know, he tries to crank it up, but it doesn't crank. And then Leatherface does hear Richter coming up, so Leatherface ends up hiding behind the door. Now, there is a mirror in the room. Uh, Melody, uh, quite brilliantly, another real, really cool scene. She actually, with her foot, she ends up moving the mirror, so Richter can actually see that Leatherface is hiding behind the door. And then we get, in my opinion, the best scene of the year. Fantastic, great fight choreography. You have the kill of the year. It's a three-part kill. You have Leatherface and Richter fighting hand-to-hand. -hand. Uh, you eventually, Leatherface gives a hammer to the knee, absolutely fucking destroying his leg, bending it backward. Richter, pushing forward, grabs uh, Leatherface and smashes him in the window. Uh, Leatherface then uses the glass that's in the frame and grabs Richter's neck and stabs him in the neck with that. Uh, Richter then uh, falls to the ground face first. Uh, whenever he falls to the ground, he's right next to Melody underneath the bed. He knows that he's done for, uh, but once he does see Melody, he's aware enough to try to pull out the keys out of his pocket, the keys that he took from him earlier in the movie. To show Melody that he's trying to help her one last time before he ends up dying. Then we get the final blow. We get the mallet to the head. You have Leatherface just welling on Richter's head. Smashing it in. Uh, fucking fantastic gore, man. One of the best scenes. Like I said, the, the best kill of the year by far. 
Uh, I know it's early in the year, but I, I wouldn't surprise me in the, being the best uh, kill of the year. You know, it's funny. It's a three-part kill. The uh, the hammer to the knee looks fantastic. Uh, the smashing of the head is fantastic. And what I actually think is the weakest part of the kill is when he grabs his neck and stabs him into the uh, the glass. I, I didn't think that looked that good. It didn't. It actually didn't look like it lined up to where he was uh, stabbed in the neck. I tried to rewind it and pause it go scene by scene and it, it just that part of it was which would have been the easiest part to do was the weakest part of the whole kill still a fantastic kill here and leatherface of course is really not smart enough to know before he died that he bothered to pull out the keys he just didn't pay attention to it at all okay so next scene we have sally she's arriving close to harlow she actually finds the crash police van in the uh, sunflower field and uh, she ends up going outside and seeing that Leatherface has propped his mama up without her face. Of course, that he's wearing her face here. Now, the key moment of this scene is what you hear through the radio dispatch. Uh, you know, Sally goes up to the police van and she hears uh, the dispatch telling the uh, talking, trying to uh, contact the dead officers, saying that they are the only people in 50 mile radius. Uh, to Harlow, and they need to investigate the death that's just reported. Uh, so, which we're assuming the death was reported was Dante by the banker lady. She is one of the, uh, you know, her and Richter were the only two people that saw at this point that Dante was dead. So, we're assuming she's the one that called in, and they're trying to get a hold of the police. Which uh, so that sets up why you know they don't realize that the cops are dead at this point. So that uh, sets up why no police officers show up from this point on to the end of the film here. Plus, at this moment, we actually see uh, Sally shaking, and she's reciting, you know, the Bible verse, I will fear no evil. Uh, once again, another clue that she's actually scared to confront Leatherface, but knows that she has to. So, this, to me, is just another little hint of what's to come, up to her lead-up to help justify what she actually does when she finally meets Leatherface for the, uh, for the first time or the second time, however you want to say it. All right, now going back to uh, Harlow, we have Lila, the younger sister. She forces her way out of the bus to go look for her sister, Melody, and she actually sees Dante with his sliced face on the side of the building dead. Now, one complaint that I heard people say is how in the fuck does this chainsaw still work after all these years? Uh, of course, it would have bad fuel. It wouldn't run. But in this next scene, we actually have... When Melody is under the bed, we actually hear Leatherface is working on the, uh, working on the chainsaw to fix it. Uh, if you watch it in subtitles, it actually says "sound of a socket wrench." So, in response to those people that says it's bullshit, the chainsaw ran right away. Uh, it didn't. It actually didn't. Here, I'm assuming during this part, uh, two things here: Leatherface put fresh fuel in it which where he got it from that's another story but <laughs> let's just say assuming they had somewhere in the uh, orphanage uh, they had they had some type of gas he put fuel in it and he's actually you know working on it to make it run here so it didn't work right away at least do enough maintenance to get it to run in here now melody she ends up grabbing the keys from uh, richter laying dead on the ground and she tries to sneak away uh and this is another great tense scene of uh, melody she's jumping over the stair railing and when she does jump over she looks up to see Leatherface is at the top of the stairs then in a holy shit moment which this in my opinion is the big black comedy moment of the film is Leatherface 
He ends up throwing his hammer at Melody's chest, which hits her square, makes her fly back uh, down the stairs and crashes through the stairs floorboard, which she ends up falling to underneath the house. Uh, while I absolutely love that moment, I do call bullshit, however, that Melody never grabs her chest in pain. Uh, for the way that the force of that hammer to knock Melody that far back, uh, either one of two things here, either, either she would have broken ribs or she would be in so intense pain. Um, so the actress though, she actually doesn't ever, what I recall, even grab her chest or stomach area at all where she would have got hit. Uh, you know, that is one flaw. Another flaw I would admit in the film, the director, he should have advised her to periodically wince maybe. And at least grab her chest periodically to make it realistic looking. Even though she didn't do that, I actually love that scene though. Because next up we get, uh, since she's underneath the house, we get uh, Leatherface. He revs up his chainsaw, tries to cut through the floorboard. He saws straight down the center to where he thinks she'll be. And eventually he saws through a pipe. Which, this is an awesome moment here. The, uh, once he goes through the pipe, the pipe actually pours sewage all over her head. Uh, very Sam Raimi-esque moment, you know, really black comedy. Uh, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was a really fun moment here. Now, Lila, she is, of course, walking down the street. She ends up hearing her sister screaming, and he helps pull her out of the grate from underneath the house. Uh, so Lila and Melody, they end up running back to the party bus, and they give keys to the drunk driver, to the drunk bus driver. He's basically passed out. And at this moment, there's another really cool shot of Leatherface, He's standing in like this um, outside hallway watching them drive off in the bus. Uh, he cuts the tires with the chainsaw, which I actually didn't realize what happened the first time I saw the film. I heard the noise, but I didn't put two and two together. But, I, you know, I did realize upon second watch here what what a fucking happened. He gets Leatherface ran and cut the back tires and, uh, you know, made the uh, the bus crash, basically. Um, so the bus driver at this point, he really don't know what the fuck's going on. I don't think he really thinks he's in any, any type of real danger. So once the, uh, the bus tires disabled, he slams open the door and runs out to see what happened. And then a few seconds later, we have a head that goes flying back in the bus driver's head. Now is what I will admit potentially is the second worst moment of the entire film is Leatherface, he gets on the bus, and all these leftist PC pussies, they pull out their phone to record Leatherface, not thinking they're in any kind of danger at all, and the guy in front, this Asian guy, he says, try anything and you're canceled, bro, <laughs> which is an extremely cheesy line, I, I totally admit that, uh, but to be honest, it's still not too far-fetched, uh, with these uh, for these kind of people here, these millennial people here. So that moment may or may not work for you. It, to me, it didn't bother me that much. Still, the worst line in any Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie is in Texas Chainsaw 3D. Uh, not not do your thing, cause I actually didn't hate that like a lot of people. But I thought the worst. The one girl tells Leatherface she uh, shoots a gun and says, "Welcome to Texas, motherfucker," which is so stupid because Leatherface is already in Texas. Why would you welcome someone to their own state? Um, now this, I don't think this line was as bad as that, but it's not a good line. I mean, I know they did it totally as a comedic element here to it. And to be honest with you, even though this series is called Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 
This is the only scene in the entire series, which is a true massacre. <laughs> Leatherface, he starts to massacre everyone with a chainsaw. He's trying... Uh, this is, man, there's dismemberments, body flying, parts flying everywhere. It's a bloody fiasco, and I absolutely love it here. Uh, what's funny is uh, the, uh, the Asian guy, he was live broadcasting from his phone, and you can see comments of people uh, on the live broadcast. And once Leatherface starts to assault through all these people, one dude in the chat says, oh, man, look, it looks so fake. I thought that was kind of funny. Plus, one comment, I had to pause the screen to read it, but one comment on the live feed was from the director himself. He actually says, who hired this clown? Which could have a double meaning. Number one is Leatherface wearing someone's mask. It kind of looks like a clown. And number two, he could have been referring to himself being the director of this movie, saying who hired this clown. So I thought that line had kind of a funny double meaning, uh, possibly here. But, uh, but like I said, I, the only reason I even saw that is because I paused the, the screen to try to read what was on here. Uh, but I thought that was kind of funny there. Now, this this whole slaughter with uh, Leatherface chainsaw through everyone is mainly practical. There were some CGI moments, but overall I thought it was mostly practical. And even the CGI I thought looked really good. Uh, so Lila and Melody, they're on the bus though with all these people crammed in there trying to escape from Leatherface's chainsaw. And Lila gets stunned, falls down to the ground, and she sees another guy on the ground. And it uh, basically reminds her of the school shooting. She ends up snapping out of it in time when Melody grabs her and drags her into the bathroom. Uh, they end up eventually escaping out of the skylight of the bathroom while the other people are just, uh, you know, being dismembered. Uh, the banker woman, she tries to jump out a window and she's cut in half. One dude, he gets cut underneath the nuts and then he gets rammed into another woman. I thought that was a really, any, overall, some really fantastic, great kills. Now, I know some people said, why don't they just bum rush him and try to overtake him? But, uh, that's easier said than done, especially when you have a, a dude, this giant, fucking giant with a chainsaw revved up full blast here. You're not going to get very far here. But I thought what was also pretty cool is Melody, in order to escape out of the bathroom, to climb out of the skylight, she actually uses uh, a chainsaw corkscrew that Lila got her from the first scene of the movie. Uh, so the girls, uh, they jump out of the bus, uh, escape from Leatherface, and then we have the entrance of Sally. She finally arrives in town. Uh, she tells the girls to get back in her vehicle. She locks them in. She has one of those gates, like a police gate, where you can't escape out of the back seat. Uh, Sally pulls out her shotgun, and she's out to hunt uh, Leatherface. So she ends up going upstairs. Uh, Leatherface, ends, after he leaves the bus, he goes upstairs, I guess, to mourn more of his mama. Sally creeps upstairs to where Leatherface is uh, sitting there unarmed, mourning his mama. Uh, Sally, in, a, in this moment, she could have easily just put the gun to Leatherface's head and pulled the trigger, but she doesn't do that. She actually uh, asks Leatherface, does he remember her? Please say my name. Say you know me. Tell me what you did to my friends. Uh, she she just wants closure. Not only she wants to kill Leatherface, she wants closure. She wants Leatherface to know why he's uh, being killed here. So Leatherface, of course, after all these decades, he don't know who the fuck she is. He don't give a shit. Leatherface, uh, I guess, realizes at this point that she's would have already shot him if she's going to. So he grabs his chainsaw, looks at her, and walks away. Uh, Sally is just devastated at the thought. One of the one of the you know psychological things you can think of here is Sally is actually devastated that she had thought 
every waking moment for these past 40 to 50 years wasted her entire life thinking about Leatherface and the revenge you get. And now she realizes that Leatherface didn't give a shit about her or her friends. They were just fodder and meant absolutely nothing to him. She wasted her life. Uh, once again, you know, I can see the complaints uh, saying, why didn't she just shoot him? Uh, of course, it is far-fetched that she did not just shoot him here, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that she just has this mental breakdown, this mental lapse to let him go at that moment. Uh, but of course, after Leatherface uh, goes downstairs, she does end up having her moment of clarity, and she realizes that she does need to kill Leatherface at all costs. And there's another cool moment in this here, while Lila and Melody are locked in the back of the truck, um, Sally's truck here, Lila actually says, uh, because of that school shooting, she didn't die that day, that death just followed her there. Meaning, basically meaning that she was meant to die. And this is, a uh, you know, death getting his way back. Uh, Leatherface then smashes the window of the car and he tries to pull Lila out. Uh, this is when we have Sally. She uh, comes back down of her shotgun. She's uh, pumped up, ready to kill him. She shoots Leatherface in the arm. Uh, it was a, really a glancing blow because it was pretty far away. Leatherface then runs away right before uh, he gets shot a second time. Uh, Sally then ends up throwing her keys to the girls and tells them they need to get the fuck out of there. And then here is one of my favorite scenes of the film besides the Richter kill. Is Sally is walking through the building. She hears a chainsaw noise. And there's a dark alleyway between two buildings. And you hear Leatherface revving his chainsaw. That all of a sudden you, you hear his footsteps running. Uh, you know that he's fucking about to, to bust out of the darkness here. And Sally, being totally scared, she narrowly misses uh, him with the first shot. And then with the second shot, she it ends up actually shooting the chainsaw. And they basically kind of have like a hand-to-hand -hand moment. Uh, Leatherface actually gets stabbed in the side uh, while he's holding the shotgun pump so she can't pump it. Then with his free arm, he does end up chainsawing her down. He lifts her up. He chainsaw her in the middle and lifts her up in the air and then throws her body. Uh, while Melody, she's uh, at this point, Melody and Lila, they actually get in the front seat and the driver's seat and they're driving the van towards Leatherface. Leatherface, the last moment, grabs a chainsaw and throws it at the windshield and barely jumping out of the way to safety. The van window is just enough to make the van crash. Uh, Melody is now trapped inside the car. She has like a metal rod through her leg, so she's trapped in the driver's seat. She tells Lila that she needs to run away um, while Leatherface is going to go gather his chainsaw that he threw at the car. Uh, and he's coming back to finish them off. Lila does uh, and reluctantly end up running away. And while, Lila, while Leatherface comes to kill Melody that's trapped in the truck, right when Leatherface uh, does confront Melody, she admits to him that she did end up killing his mama and she ends up deserving to die. Once again, another moment of proving that, that she's just not this careless piece of shit here. She actually realized what she did was wrong. Lila, though, ends up showing up to save the day. She tries to shoot Leatherface, but the gun doesn't work. So Leatherface, though, sees his opportunity and starts chasing after Lila into the street. And at the last moment, he's shot by a dying Sally. Uh, Sally, who he had tossed aside earlier, a few moments earlier. She's actually laying in a bag of trash bags and not completely dead. Uh, she ends up uh, saving Lila's life, uh, life, though. She ends up 
shooting uh, Leatherface in the side and his back shoulder. And to me, this is one of the best scenes. Another awesome scene of the film is with Sally's last dying breath. Uh, she tells Lila, don't run. He will never stop hunting you. So knowing that she, if Lila just runs away and just goes to get help, and Leatherface, of course, ends up escaping, she, uh, he will haunt her mind forever like he did Sally all these years. So Lila, at the moment of uh, clarity, of course, dealing with her PTSD, realizes the only thing she can do, the right thing to do, is she gets Sally's uh, shotgun, and she ends up chasing Leatherface to this abandoned movie theater. Uh, great location. I thought this uh, movie theater was awesome. Cool, uh, was awesome location because when you first walk in in the theater and the, I guess the uh, the foyer area, there's a huge hole in the floor with a huge pool of water covering, which I guess leads down to the basement area. And then uh, Leatherface, he's not too dumb here. He does he pulls a little trick here. He has his chainsaw running in one room while he's actually in a different room. And ends up uh, tackling uh, Lila, and they end up falling into the water. Uh, I guess Lila ends a better swimmer, ends up uh, escaping. Leather faces clutches from under the water, and she starts to claw, crawl out of the hole and starts crawling towards the shotgun. Leatherface does climb out of the hole himself. He, uh, this is a pretty cool, another great uh, choreography moment. Like I mentioned, it has great... When you think of fight choreography, you normally think of kung fu, martial arts movies, and hand-to-hand combat. But there's also great uh, action choreography, and I thought this movie had a lot of it here. Whether it's going from Leatherface throwing his chainsaw at the at the, um, windshield and Leatherface sliding in this scene here. Leatherface slings a chainsaw where it slides on the ground, and just enough to hit Lila in the re- leg and trip her. Uh, Lila ends up falling on the ground. She falls short of the shotgun. She realizes this is probably it, that uh, she's uh, you know about to die. Then all of a sudden, Melody appears to save the day. Uh, she ends up uh, jumping on Leatherface's back, and it's uh, holding on to her. She ends up getting flung off. Lila, she ends up uh, coming out of her PTSD funk, and she grabs a shotgun and shoots a ch- chainsaw out of his hand. Uh, gets him in the arm area, and then there is one clean shot that looks like uh, he got his right side of the chest, opposite of the heart. It's the cleanest shot in the whole movie, put it this way. So she definitely did some damage to him in the last shot. And then to finish it off, uh, Leatherface is standing there right in front of the hole, and Melody, she actually grabs a chainsaw and does one last uppercut to the chin of Leatherface. Leatherface falls into the water, sinks to the bottom, and never comes out. Now, realistically, you know, Leatherface could have easily, as soon as he fell in the water, he came to his senses, and he could have easily swam to the other side of the room underwater to get like an air pocket until they end up leaving. I'm assuming that's what he did. I mean, it's once again, it's far-fetched, but not, not unbelievable here. Next scene we have, it's morning time, and we now have Melody and Lila. Uh, they are, um, you know, Lila on their way to the car, to the self-driving Tesla. They, um, she picks up Richter's uh, cowboy hat and puts it on. They get into Dante's, uh, Tesla. They, uh, open up the sunroof. They put the car into autopilot and, uh, they choose Austin. Now here's where also went ahead and freeze framed here. You see the GPS map. Um, but you don't get to see exactly, I couldn't find anything that showed exactly how far Harlow was away from Austin. 
from what I could tell, if I was just a guess from where the overhead map was, I would show. I would guess that they're probably an hour and a half, two hours maximum away from Austin, which makes it a lot more believable. Because earlier in the film, Lila she says, "Yeah," uh, when she's arguing with Melody, she says, "Yeah, people are going to come seven hours from nowhere." Which I, I thought that was a literal. I thought they were like way in West Texas, seven miles, seven hours away from Austin in the middle of nowhere. But apparently Lila was just exaggerating just to make a point here. So uh, I actually I actually took her, you know, that being literal this whole time. But then the end of the scene proves, though, that they really aren't that far away from Austin. They probably are, probably are anywhere from one to two hours away. Then we get our, what I call our obviously happy-go-lucky terror moment. Uh, they're driving away on autopilot. Lila cracks a joke about uh, she's okay now moving to, Mar uh, to Harlow while she does have Richter's hat on, which I thought was a nice touch. And then out of nowhere, we have Leatherface smashing out the window. He grabs Melody, pulls her out of the car, and obviously CGI, he ends up sawing her head off. Uh, you know, once again, another CGI moment, but I still thought it worked overall here. And while Melody is on her knees with her head sawed off and in Leatherface's hand, Lila, being helpless, watches out of the sunroof while the automated car is driving away. Uh, which, actually, if you think about it, it mirrors Sally in the first film uh, uh, driving away. And Leatherface starts to do the same type of Leatherface dance, spinning around in the air, swinging the chainsaw. He does the same exact type of thing as uh, Lila's leaving, same as we did when Sally was leaving here. So I thought that was another pretty cool homage, doing Leatherface doing his happy dance that he did from part one. And then you have the end credits. And of course, I had already knew ahead of time that there was an end credit scene. So I did fast forward, and then the very end of the end credits, you have one last shot of Leatherface. He's actually walking up the driveway to his old house that he lived 50 years ago. <laughs> All right, now the director stated that he already has some great ideas for the sequel. Even things that he wanted to do in the first film, but he couldn't do or he had to cut out. Uh, let's just hope that Netflix goes by the amount of watches this film has, made, has done and not really based on the reviews or feedback. Once again, this is a absolutely love or hated type of film. It seems like it's 50-50 in my opinion. Um, but, you know, uh, the early numbers came back after the first week and apparently shitload of people did watch it here. I, th I did the math on it. I think it was like close to 350,000 people, which doesn't actually sound a lot, but it does for, a you know, I guess a Netflix original, as you will. I think it's definitely enough. I think they said, depending on how it did from week two on, was going to determine whether they're going to greenlight a sequel. But hopefully they do. I personally hope they do because uh, I thought that... I thought the director did a fantastic job. All right, so now to wrap up here, uh, the film, I'm going to go over some pros, cons, some things that I heard, and uh, we'll go over it here. All right, now the pros, I thought this film was fucking slim and trim, uh, no fucking fat. Uh, I, the only, of course, like I said, the only scene, single scene I can think of that could uh, take, they could have completely cut out was a sunflower seed. But other than that, there was no lame dialogue scene. There was no unnecessary uh, repeat scene. Uh, I don't think there's anything they could have uh, taken out of the film to make it flow better here. Uh, number two, fantastic gore. Awesome practical gore and solid CGI gore. 
uh, from really brutal kills from the first kill on to the last kill, man. Some extremely brutal kills and moments. Um, a great soundtrack. Now, the soundtrack on this is not one of, one of those orchestral soundtracks. It's kind of like a moody, industrial, noisy, kind of like droning noises and stuff. Um, I'll play part of it, I think, on this podcast so you'll know what I'm talking about. But, yeah, I thought it had a pretty cool soundtrack that actually, uh, you know, fit the movie quite well. And, and of course, they didn't overplay that camera click that you heard. Uh, Solid locations. I think the sunflower field was awesome. Uh, The town, which is obviously a set in Bulgaria. But I thought all of that was a great set design. Also, another positive, this is actually an anti-woke movie. I know people, despite the early comments about the open carry, the school shooting backstory, uh, guns were actually very necessary in this film to keep Leatherface at bay and ultimately have uh, Lila survive. And another pro, which a lot of people are going to disagree on, I thought it actually had a lot of solid characters here. Now, you can actually make a case that Dante overall was a piece of shit. Because the way he, uh, you know, inter- the way he acted around the old lady when to kick her out and not, you know, actually following through to make sure that they had rights to do that. Now, you, you know, you could say he was a piece of shit, but I thought the other characters proved at least uh, they were either caring or willing to, to sacrifice their life to save someone else here. Another uh, thing that proves anti-woke is the, uh, you have the cancel culture fucks they end up getting slaughtered it's not like uh, they made it out okay and they end up being uh, fodder <laughs> so there's nothing with the cancer cancel culture that end up uh, being positive i mentioned in the film at least all right now to get some negatives into the movie uh the whole plot of the story uh, about this town in the middle of nowhere uh, you know being a potential hipster mecca you know it is far-fetched but still plausible uh, the Sally Hardesty subplot, uh, is unnecessary, probably true, but I thought that the actress, she brought some depth to the character. She did have some solid dialogue in parts. Uh, you know, other thing, I'm not going to repeat what I mentioned before, but I thought some of the things she had actually worked. Uh, the, uh, another con, of course, is, uh, the Leatherface Sunflower Teletubby scene. Uh, oh my God, just terrible. Uh, the rebel flag uh, being unnecessary, uh, but how they weaved it into the story was plausible. You know, they had to come up with some reason for them to go into the house, and I thought that was a decent way for them to uh, to go in there. You know, they probably could have thought of something better, but I don't think it was too far-fetched. Another potential con is, you know, Leatherface. People say he's too old, but think about it here. You have Liam Neeson, Stallone. Many other action stars who are 70 years or older, and if they can do it, fucking Leatherface can do it here. And then another uh, big complaint I heard is, how is this a sequel? Uh, There's no cook, there's no orphanage in the original film. Uh, But yes, it does actually fit into the continuity of the original film. It's not spelled out for you, you just got to put two and two together. Uh, so here's my theory. I'm just giving, you know, throwing out a theory there. I think in 1973, when Sally Hardesty escaped, they, of course, the cook and Leatherface had to flee. I think, you know, it doesn't say one or the other, but I think they left Grandpa at the house. The cops probably discovered Grandpa. The cook and Leatherface probably uh, escaped somewhere to either, uh, you know, a family, close family member's for, uh, house towards in the area, or maybe a friend. And they stayed there for a while. The cook 
knowing he need, still needed a flea, get the fuck out of Dodge. Your tours of Texas Rangers are still, according to this movie, he's still looking at uh, this case, trying to figure out who the fuck you were. I think that uh, Cook got the fuck out of Dodge. He wanted to get the hell out of there, and he didn't want to bring Leatherface with him. So I think it's possible that Leatherface could have stayed with the aunt or a friend or relative, and then she didn't couldn't take care of him. So she ended up uh, sending him to this orphanage or, you know, I don't think it's too far-fetched at all. And then when Leatherface gets there, this woman becomes a new new uh, mother figure in his life. Uh, and my prediction, too, is before she even buried the chainsaw, I think that Leatherface probably went on another little killing spree. He may have killed two or three people before she realized that, he, that she's got to stop him. And I think she actually babied him and convinced him. And that's when she sealed his uh, um, chainsaw in the wall. So I, I think it's totally possible that Leatherface did kill a few more people and she just helped, uh, you know, help bury it, as you will here. You know, you can come up with your own conclusions, but it doesn't definitely doesn't contradict what happened at the end of the first film. And Jenny did mention at the beginning of the film that she not only she took in orphans, she also took in wayward teenagers, which she possibly couldn't re be referring to Leatherface. Probably was at this time 18 or 19, I'm assuming, is potentially what they were lead leading us to believe here. All right, now I'm going to go ahead and mention some other uh, negatives I heard people say. Uh, the film, once again, the film is too woke. Um... How about anti-woke? You know, guns are really important. Cancer culture fucks get slaughtered. The old Negro loving lady dies. <laughs> School shootings are obviously bad, but Lila still overcame her fear to fight back with a gun nonetheless. I just think it's a fun film that played on recent controversial cancer culture issues in a dark and fun way. I don't think you should read too much into it. Uh, was all that stuff necessary? No, but I think it... I think it added here, if anything, like I said, it added to some of the, uh, to the kills here. I heard the acting was terrible. I totally disagree. I thought, uh, I thought the acting was, uh, you know, spot on. I, of course, think of some other most, more recent films. I think they're uh, just as good as any of those. If you think the acting is bad, I think it's just as done as well as any other recent, uh, big budgeted horror film. Another complaint I heard, which is just fucking stupid, is it wasn't even filmed in Texas. Who actually gives a shit about that? I thought it looked real enough. I've seen buildings uh, that looked exactly like that in real life. Uh, my, the town I come from, um, we had a downtown area that looked almost exactly like those buildings. There's some other small towns. I grew up in a town of uh, 5,000 people. We had a couple towns close to us, uh, Thorndale and Thrall. They had like a thousand people, almost almost equal to what Harlow was, according to the population sign, and all of their downtown area looked old school like that here. So, and this is you know modern day time, so it definitely is believable here. So I just don't get where where they said it doesn't look like it was filmed in Texas. So it was a negative, and you know what? I don't give fucking give a shit. It can be filmed in Ukraine, North Korea, for all I care, as long as it looks cool. That's all I care about here. Another uh, recent complaint I heard is it's a Jason Michael clone. What the fuck do you expect here? It's not a period piece film. Uh, if it was like, you know, an, in the early 80s, 90s, you know, it could have been, uh, you know, it's not trying to be a clone of the original. It's a modern day slasher that actually slashes. You know, I thought the Leatherface actor was intimidating brutal uh i really don't know what people are complaining about here what the fuck do you really want for the people that uh are complaining that it's a 
a slasher clone here. Did you want an A24 slow burn character drama? Is that what you really wanted? Is A24 to produce this and direct it and have a slow burn Leatherface uh, drama uh, as 70 year old Leatherface? I just, you know, knowing that it was a modern day movie, then in a sequel to the original, I just don't know what else people are really expecting. And you know damn well if they went that route. If they went the heavy drama route and there was very little kills and people to complain that. Well, there you go. That's some of my brief thoughts on the movie. I thought that it was fucking fantastic, to be honest with you. Whether as a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I thought it was really well done. I thought as a modern day slasher, is extremely well done. Uh, I have very minor complaints. If any of the little stuff bothers you, you know, I can't, I can't help it. There are, you know, once again, there are definitely some far-fetched moments, but I think they're uh could pass as believable all right so that is uh all i have actually for this review i hope you enjoyed it i hope you at least uh thought about a few things and got entertained or uh, maybe just like me didn't get anything out of it but f figure out what the fuck coal rolling is <laughs> maybe you always know what coal rolling was well maybe i'm one of the few people that didn't know what the hell coal rolling was uh just thinking about that just pisses me off man the next time that happens that man Oh, I can't even, I don't even want to think about it, put it that way here. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the scene-by-scene -scene review. Whether you agreed with me or not, disagreed, let me know in the comments. Join my Facebook group. Uh, you can search it under Jason Unleashed, uh, and I will have a link to it in the show notes. And hopefully soon, if I decide to record some more podcasts soon, then I'll go ahead and get a, an updated uh, podcast feed. But at this moment, you can find Episode 1 and Episode 2 on the darkdiscussions.com website under the uh, Dark Discussions podcast feed. Uh, so thank you again, uh, Philip uh, Perrin and the other Dark Dark Discussions crew out there. And thank you for all the listeners for giving me a chance. I hope you like the podcast and let me know whether you agree or disagree or whatever the fuck you think. Until next time, peace. <laughs>